go. Oh, sorry. I couldn't see the countdown. (laughs) (laughs) Jeremy, you and I take care of athletes, right? How often do you field questions about concussions? I feel like my concussion evaluations very often mirror the pumpkin patch busyness <laughs> busyness scale. Yeah. Meaning that for most of the year, every once in a while, and then football season hits and then it's all the time. Yeah, true. Well, I, I feel like I get a lot of questions in the office or, or even just people calling me or texting me. And it's usually things like, uh, I was playing basketball and I got elbowed in the face or... I was getting groceries out of the back of the car and I smacked my head on the tailgate of the door. Uh, I feel weird. Uh, Do I have a concussion? (laughs) So symptoms after these seemingly minor head injuries, they can be vague and nebulous. Um, You can have a mild headache. You can have a severe headache. You can have dizziness. You can have some foggy thinking. But how does somebody really know if they have a concussion? You got me. How do I know? <laughs> well, let's let's go to you know the the all around experts, the CDC. That's usually where I go to first. Um, the CDC, the Centers of D- Disease Control and Prevention, definition of a concussion. So they call it a type of traumatic brain injury or TBI, which we've heard that term before. It's caused by a bump, blow, or jolt to the head, uh, or by a hit to the body that causes the head and brain to move rapidly back and forth. So this sudden movement can cause the brain to bounce around or twist in the skull, creating chemical changes in the brain and sometimes stretching and damaging brain cells. So I think that's actually kind of a nice way to put it. And that's from the CDC's website. Yeah, I also feel like uh, the CDC didn't do us any favors on making that approachable, to be honest. Like (laughs) listening to that on my end, I was like, well, that's a lot of jargon. It is, but it's hard because I mean, I think we're going to take this whole episode today to discuss, you know, we're only really talking about today, like how the hell do we even diagnose this? How do I even know if I have a concussion, let alone going into, you know, the treatment and the return to play and the long term problems associated with a concussion. I think this is going to be like 75 further episodes. And um, and I'm so glad that we have our guests and we'll get into it. But yeah, these things are very common. According to the CDC, so in 2019, 15% of high schoolers reported one or more sports or recreational related concussions in the preceding 12 months. So they asked kids in high school, you know, have you had a concussion? And 15% of them said it in the last year that they did. So that's, that's a fair slice of of Americana right there, of the young people. Even though this is considered a mild brain injury, since these injuries are often not life-threatening, the effects can be serious. And diagnosing the concussion can be really tricky. It often takes a skilled, trained healthcare professional to assess both the signs and the symptoms. The problem is that research in concussion diagnosis has not found one single test to reliably diagnose a concussion. But rather, healthcare professionals typically use a combination of symptom scores, physical exam findings, including balance and eye movements. And I know, Jeremy, you were just on ABC7 Chicago recently talking about Abbott's new iStat TBI blood test. Uh, but we can go into the details about that later. But what, what's the consensus there? Is there an easy blood test for concussions, Jeremy? Uh, the consensus was Beth wasn't available that day. So I had to... I, well. So, so, so so I made it on the show, but yeah, uh, no, there isn't. It does require a a human being to, 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 to make this diagnosis. Too hard. Well, fine. Yes. The million dollar question and the, and what we're trying to answer today is how can we recognize if we or someone we know is experiencing a concussion and what should we do about it in the immediate aftermath? How do we secure an accurate diagnosis? And fortunately, 
our guest, who you just mentioned, um, is an absolute expert in all things concussion diagnosis, and she's here to help us understand more. So let's get to it. How are you thinking? How are you feeling? Do, do you feel sharp, Jeremy? Uh, I feel like I just had a rapid back and forth brain injury to my head and it's creating <laughs> chemical changes in my brain and it's stretching and damaging brain cells. Let's do this. <laughs> Welcome to your doctor friends, the show that teaches you to sniff out the garbage and answers all the questions that you wish you could call or text your doctor friend. My name's Julie Bruni. And I'm Jeremy Allen, and we are two physicians who work at a nationally ranked practice and take care of some of the world's greatest athletes. We know that you have questions and we want to help. We want to be your doctor friends. All right, let's get started with uh, our esteemed, very, very esteemed guest, uh, Dr. Beth Piroth. Um, who has a lot of uh, wonderful letters after her name, Psy-D, uh, A-B-P-P, M-P-H. Uh, she's, here's a quick bio. There's no such thing as a quick bio on someone that is this accomplished, but I'll try to do it some justice. So Dr. Piroth is the director of the concussion program at Midwest Orthopedics at Rush, where we work. Um, she has assessed concussion in the National Hockey League since 1997. Damn, Beth. Um, she's a <laughs> head injury and concussion specialist for Many, many teams. Um, I want to give you an accurate list. Hold on. Including, but not limited to, the Chicago Bears, the Chicago Blackhawks, the Chicago Fire, the Chicago White Sox, the Chicago Red Stars. Uh, Chicago, is it Chicago Hounds? It is. Yeah, the Hounds, which is the Major League Rugby team, the Rockford Ice Hogs, the Indianapolis Fuel, and the also the MLB Umpire Association, which is absolutely amazing, and those people are very important. Um, she's the director of the neuropsychology consultants for the, both the National Football League and the National Women's Soccer League. Um, really, I can't stop saying wonderful things about her. Um, she's also on the board of directors for the Braid Injury Association of Illinois. So, Beth, oh my gosh, thank you so much for being with us tonight. Uh, I'm, you're too cool for us. No, I'm just a bunch of dork as Jeremy is. <laughs> okay, good, good. We've established yeah. that. Yes. I, I have a quick question. 1997, I thought that was kind of like the rub dirt on it time for concussion. What were you doing <laughs> back in that time? Yes. Uh, no, there was uh, the first year at the NHL had a mandatory concussion program. The NHL was really ahead of the curve. I was doing my postdoctoral fellowship um, in at uh, Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit. And my mentor, a gentleman named Dr. Mark Lovell, was at the time really the world's leading expert on concussion. And he took me under his wing and as his fellow, and we were assessing um, the Detroit Red Wings. I have to say, boo, Red Wings, you know, part of <laughs> no, the, Chicago Chicago Girl, yeah. the Blackhawks. Yeah. But um, that's really where I started the work. And then I came back to Chicago, you know, where I'm from, and started working with uh, the Blackhawks and the Bears and, and the other teams. And so, yeah, and it's so funny because people say to me all the time, oh, you're so lucky, you, you know, like your timing is really good about this. And I'm like, I don't do concussion work for 25 years. <laughs> yeah. And my mentors were doing it 20 years before me. Yeah. So neuropsychologists have been working with athletes and concussion since, you know, the 80s. So we're been doing this for a long time. I'm so glad Beth is here. Uh, so, you know, you kind of walked us through and how you got to be the concussion master. Let's, let's, let's personalize this. Let's um, walk us through a typical patient that you would see like in the office today. So like 
for example, let's pretend, let's like make it be me. Because of course, this is about me. Let's pretend I got hit in the head because I was um, scooping kitty litter out of litter box and I stood up too fast and I bonked my head on the shelf and then I saw stars. Um, how would you work me up? What questions would you ask me? Like, give me give me the rundown of what I would expect to have like a real good concussion assessment from the master herself. So first off, I just want to tell you, you'd be surprised how many concussions I see from cabinets and yeah. things like like the islands and things. So people really do hit their head bending over all the time. Okay, so the very first thing that I start with is always a really clear understanding of the mechanism of injury. Mm -hmm. uh, meaning how, you know, I literally say to people, walk me through how you got hurt. Because that's really important. Um, for one reason, I want to understand what happened to their body because so much of the time there is some, some involvement of the neck. You know, I always joke with my patients, our brains don't free float above our bodies. So when you hit your head, there's always some, you know, contortion of the neck. And I want to understand that the neck or the jaw or some other part is uh, injured as well and maybe contributing some of the symptoms. Mm -hmm. I also truthfully want to understand if there's enough what we call biomechanical force applied to the head to actually cause an injury. Because mm -hmm. I want to really assure people that fortunately, every hit to the head does not cause a concussion. Not that I'm minimizing it, not that I'm, you know, saying don't worry about it. But fortunately, our skulls do a pretty good job protecting us. And every time you hit your head, it's not a concussion. So I want to understand if it's uh, enough force. And, and, you know, on occasion, you do get somebody who's just, you know, worried about their injury. But when you kind of walk them through it, you're like, mm, that doesn't, that, it, that wouldn't be, you know, suggestive of a concussion. Got and it. the next thing okay. I do is I really walk chronologically through their symptoms. I want to understand, you know, was there any loss of conscious? Was there any amnesia for the event? It's not at all uncommon for people to have what we call retrograde amnesia, meaning amnesia before the event. And so they don't recall the fall or, you know, standing up and hitting your head on the, on the counter. Or they mm -hmm. can have what's called post-traumatic amnesia after the injury. Um, and so I want to understand, because that helps us a lot understand how the brain responds. Okay. But then I go through, tell me how you're feeling now, and then understanding how those symptoms develop. Because there is research to look at that, what we call the burden of symptoms, you know, what types of symptoms you had, how severe, can tell us a lot about sort of the, the uh, progression of the ills and uh, the, uh, the injury and what we may be expect in recovery. So it's really, really important to understand that. Plus, um, we also want to make sure that the symptoms are starting within a, you know, relative um brief period of time. Meaning we do know that people can have delayed onset of symptoms. Generally for most people about four to six hours, we see with athletes, we see car accidents that people don't immediately have symptoms. You know, adrenaline is a very powerful drug. And mm -hmm. so people can be really upset after a car accident or playing a sport and be, you know, in their zone with adrenaline and not have any symptoms immediately. But if somebody is having symptoms days later, it's likely something else. Not that their symptoms are not real. I don't in any way want to minimize someone's individual symptoms. But uh, we have to understand that timeline, and that's super important. But then I, you know, I really go through, you know, if it's somebody who's a new injury, I'm really trying to understand their symptoms and their, what their responsibilities are. Is it, are they a student? Are they a worker? What is um, their responsibilities? Because... 
It's very important, and the data really supports this, that we want to get people back to school and work quickly, that people who go back to activities sooner actually get better sooner. And so I want to understand how do I control their environment at school, at workplace to get them back? Yeah, obviously minimizing their symptom. Um, and I also do a lot of neuroeducation because what something that's super important is for new patients is um, having a clear expectation of recovery. I want people to understand what to expect. And if it's an older injury, we do a lot of examination of what may be triggering symptoms to try to get to that underlying cause of persistent symptoms. Um, and then it's, you know, we talk about their educational history, their family history. These tend to be pretty long appointments because you're, I always say I'm trying to unpeel the onion about mm -hmm. what may be contributing to symptom. Um, so, you know, the brain's pretty complex. So a brain injury can really affect people quite differently. So, um, you know, it's a lot of time spent, a lot of education. It sounds like a lot of the diagnosis comes with understanding and, and taking an inventory of someone's symptoms. So it sounds like, okay, I hit my head. I started having symptoms within an hour or so, or maybe even immediately. And right. you, you touched on some of those, the amnesia stuff. What other, what other like, um, common symptoms do you see that really do fit more of a diagnosis with, of concussion? Like I didn't have this before I hit my head and not very long thereafter, I started having these symptoms. What should people be looking out for to say like, this is new, this is weird. Maybe this actually fits with concussion. It's a great question. So we always want to distinguish between what we call signs and symptoms. Hmm. So signs are those things that are observable by other people. And I do a lot of training. Um, and one of the things that with parents, I always say, we want as many eyes on the field, on the ice, on the pitch as possible to look for these types of behaviors that suggest somebody may have a concussion. And so, you know, it is things like wobbly, right? They stand up and they're gross, what we call gross motor incoordination or ataxia, meaning they're having trouble walking. Um, that when you're talking to them, they're slow to respond. That's always a big trigger. Um, people often feel slow in their thinking. Personality changes. I think that's one of the things that we don't talk enough about is that we can see personality changes. So we can, I've had, you know, 300 pound Chicago Bears players saying, I was crying on the sidelines. I don't know yeah. why. And I'm like, I do. Um, you know, or people can act um, goofy. They can act agitated. They can, they, you know, I would call it sort of a lack of filter. Um, and so that's one of the reasons I am very, uh, I'm a big supporter of athletic trainers because they know these kids mm -hmm. and they can tell you when the kid's acting, you know, unusual. Um, and this, the symptoms of concussion are those things that the patient themselves report. So mm -hmm. they may say they have a headache, they're uh, dizzy, they're uh, nauseous, they're sensitive to light or sound. They have visual changes like blurred vision or seeing spots. They may have ringing in the ears or a sense of muffled hearing. They may have sensitivity to be light or sound. Um, you have fatigue and, and the cardinal feature for me is always the cognitive changes, meaning thinking changes. And, you know, it's this, people describe it all kinds of different ways, but they'll say they feel foggy, cloudy, loopy, out of it, slowed. I, I hear all kinds of descriptions, you know, but I always tell people that it's, is the function of the brain changed? And that's really the key factor because 
um, again, not minimizing your uh, symptoms or a headache, but if you hit your head, you're going to have a headache. If you hit your arm, your arm's going to hurt, right? Mm-hmm. And so a headache in and of itself is not a concussion. You're looking for that is changes and the functioning of the brain. And that, listen, that's really difficult because the research has looked at a myriad of other conditions that really mimic concussion. And it can be very difficult. It can be really challenging. And that's why these interviews and you know uh, appointments are longer because you're really trying to tease apart, is it concussion or something else? Um, like the neck, um, you know, the when you injure the neck, you can have headaches and dizziness and nausea and tinnitus and other things. Um, and so you have to be really careful that you're um, distinguishing between the neck, a concussion or something else, mm-hmm. right? And I, by the way, I see that that cat who caused your concussion in the back. <laughs> yeah. So we don't know if it was that one. There's four other ones that may have been the source. Oh my God, Julie, you're a crazy cat lady. Really? You? How did you not know this, Beth? We've been working together for years. <laughs> we need to hang out more. Are you so, concussed, Beth? Yeah. I am. I am. I am. Julie did a nice job that. of setting. Julie did a nice job of setting a scene in your office, kind of like seeing a patient. I think yeah. one of the things that is clearly obvious with concussions is that sometimes there were not evaluating them in the office or frankly this is a show in which we're answering questions where people are texting them and this is a common one where like do you think i should get looked at for a concussion like what should i be looking for and so i want to transplant you to a couple different locations if you don't mind so mm. so the, the 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 first location would be is maybe the most common one of somebody listening right now is maybe they'd had that same thing they hit the cabinet and they're like like Oh, shoot. Uh, you know, let me Google concussion. All right, let me read oh, that Lord. definition Julie had on the CDC. Shit, I don't know what the... Jesus. Like, <laughs> it looks like my yeah. brain is damaged. Um, yeah. I'm going to text okay, somebody I know. This, the CDC and the twisting of the brain. Okay, Your your brain does not move. Like, I think this idea of like your brain twisting inside your skull. I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> like you're wringing out a rag. I know. Exactly. I was like, there's not enough room that your brain's actually <laughs> turning and twisting in there. But okay. So you've been doing this for decades, Beth. I got to imagine you have a lot of friends and people know that you do concussions. So I got to imagine that you get texts every once in a while, like, do I have a concussion? So like, what are you saying to that person? On the daily sometimes. Yeah, right. So like that person who texts you, they're they're a friend. You want to provide them some some guidance. And they say, I hit my head and I just want to know what what do I do? Like, what would you say back to them? So I always say, first off, um, monitor it for at least, you know, four hours or so. So, you know, one of the myths, you know, there's lots of myths out there with concussion. But one of the myths is, you know, you have to wake up every two hours. That's not actually true. Um, we actually prefer that people sleep. Um, but we don't want people hitting their head and going right to bed. Because if there were to be a more serious injury, like a cerebral bleed, a hemorrhage, um, what you start to see is decompensation. So people look worse. Mm-hmm. And so what we're looking for is a couple of things. And the first one is... Is there worsening of symptoms? So most people, when they have a, you know, hit their head or, in, you know, in a soccer game or something, when you take them away, their symptoms kind of stabilize or they get a little better. If people are starting to look more confused, if they're starting to look more fatigued and you're having a hard time sort of arousing them, waking them, if they're reporting that their headache is really increasing, that's when you should be going to absolutely be going to the hospital, right? Mm-hmm. Repetitive vomiting is also a, a concern that can mean swelling of the brain. Again, very rare. Um, mm. And kids throw up for a lot of reasons. We know this. Um, but it's the repetitive vomiting that we get worried about. Um, mm. Any evidence of seizure activity, again, very rare. 
any evidence of a blown pupil, meaning you see the eyes all black, basically. Um, again, very rare, uh, but those are, are concerns. Um, you know, if there's any concern about spinal cord injury, weakness or numbness in, uh, and, you know, one of the uh, arms or legs, those are all things that we go, you, you just bought yourself a CT scan at the emergency room. Um, but, you know, without those things, everyone doesn't need to go to the emergency room, right? I mean, certainly now we can spend eight hours there. So I typically tell people to watch for those things. And if it's, you know, a child, I do, t you know, I say, I say, you might want to call your pediatrician, just let them know what happened um, and sort of document what's, what's going on. Typically, most people can be monitored safely from home. Yeah, I find that even if you call your pediatrician or a lot of times there's not a lot of familiarity with concussions, you know, some have more familiarity than others. And so, and especially since a lot of times that's an on-call person or whatnot, who may not know your child as well, there's just a lot of like defensive, like go to the emergency room yeah. for sure um, that happens. And I think that that's frustrating because I think, as you mentioned, the vast majority of these don't need to go to the emergency room. So again, as somebody who has you in my Rolodex who I'm texting with and saying, what do I need to look out for? You kind of just told me the things I need to look out to go to the ER, but like, let's just say I spend the next 24 to 48 hours monitoring myself. Like at what point do you say, go see a trained professional versus like keep monitoring it and start gradually increasing your activity or like, you know what I'm saying? Like what, 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 I think what it, thresholds are you giving for people? I think it depends on what your goals are. Mm. Um, if you're, let's say an adult and you have some symptoms nothing that warrants emergency room and you need to take a day or two off of work and we can talk about that. Um, you sometimes can probably just be monitored. If you're have a child who is looking for maybe some accommodations at school or you're at some point wanting them to return to a sport, they absolutely should see somebody um, in, in, in the state of Illinois and in many other states that's required anyways. So you can't simply call up your school and say, my child had a concussion, you know, let them, you know, not take tests for a, for a bit of time. Or um, I get a concussion, I think he's fine, he can go back to, you know, soccer. Uh, no. So you're going to be required in most states to, to see a uh, healthcare professional trained in concussion management. If you're the adult and you start to feel a little bit better, like, do I need to go in to see somebody? It, it, again, it probably depends on yeah. what your goals are. You know, uh, there's a lot of people who do play sports and have general question about, you know, returning to sports or returning to activity. Um, we have a lot of our weekend warriors that use sports medicine to see on a regular basis. Um, and, you know, or they want to understand, uh, uh, can they return to work? Can't, you know, what, what sort of accommodations in the workplace should they have? And that can be really helpful to sit down and talk to somebody about how do I manage the symptoms? Because one of the biggest myths, and I think you all know that this is the bane of my existence, is this this myth about, you know, you have to rest and lay in a dark room and everything after a concussion. And, you know, we've been trying for years to get people to stop talking about rest and instead talk about symptom management. And that means what are your symptoms and how do we manage your environment, be it work or school or home, to try to lessen those symptoms, you know, we want you to be engaging back in life as quickly as possible, but we don't want you to feel awful. We're nice people, right? Um, so we want you to, to want to understand what are your work expectations or your school expectations and how do we manage that environment? So like, I, I had a case once, so uh, she was an attorney and she was arguing a case before the Supreme Court. 
guess what? She was not going to be able to ask for her, you know, some time off. Um, so we said, okay, how do we, how do we look at your work? You know, how do we change your work um, for the next few days while you're really symptomatic so you can get through what you need to get through? Yeah. That's a good point because, yeah, Jeremy and I, I mean, I think we see a lot of pediatric concussions and like school age concussions and then and then into our like um, athletes, our professional and our collegiate athletes where it's very clear that they have very, you know, need to meet guidelines to be able to return back to um, putting their head at at increased risk than me, Joe Schmo, who goes to work every day and talks to people and sits at a computer and, you know, drives a car. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I think, I think that was a good distinction, Beth of like, all right, the kids probably need to be evaluated by a, a trained professional. And we can go into that in a minute of like what that means. Who do you, who, who do we think is, or who, who do the, our governing bodies say is a trained professional to evaluate somebody for concussion. And then also, um, you know, as adults who can make, you know, legally make decisions for ourselves and our own healthcare and also... I- have are the experts of what our lives are like and what we need to return back to. And you know, maybe my job is something that involves not even, not even just speaking to the Supreme court, but more or someone whose job is to manage a heavy machinery. Like, I don't right. know, I need to know so, when it's safe for me to do that the same way if it was, if I blew up my rotator cuff. Absolutely. And so what I tell people all the time is that most people can safely go back to work within a couple of days some don't need any time off work, but generally most of us can manage our work requirements with symptoms. You know, we don't feel great, but we may have some symptoms and we may have significant symptoms, but it, it really depends on a couple of factors. One, it depends on what you're doing. I mean, if you're a roofer and you're dizzy, I'm not telling you to go back to work. You know, I want you going up and down ladders, right? If there's something about your work responsibilities, I had a patient recently who worked with special ed kids. And really had to be on this game um, and just didn't feel like he could safely care for the kids. I don't want him going back to work then. And it also depends on the severity of your symptoms. If you're, you know, even if you're, let's, you have an office job, but you have to drive and you're really dizzy uh, and you're just really, uh, you know, foggy, maybe you shouldn't be driving to work. Or maybe your headache is so bad, you just can't get through the day. So it's mm-hmm. all of those things that we look at to say, can somebody go back to school? Can somebody go back to work? And can we, again, make accommodations in that environment? Or maybe we can't, right? So there are plenty of times with people who are adults that we just, you know, can't get them back right away. Yeah. I think one of the things that has happened with concussion from my perspective is that back in 1997, when you guys were not as well known as you are now Mm -hmm. that we've kind of overshot the other way. Now, everybody is obviously very aware of concussion. And so the question then becomes is everybody, you know, it's scary, right? It's your brain and you see movies of people dying and you see, you know, like all the, uh, you know, CTE type things that people like where people are like taking their own life and they're like, Oh, it's because they had all their concussions. And so you go to Google and you get that CDC thing and you're like, Oh my gosh, this is, deadly. Like I, I need to get looked at. And I think what I think you've done a really good job here of highlighting is again, like 
it's important to be cognizant of your symptoms and certainly some of the things you mentioned before of going to the emergency room. But for the vast majority of people, this is kind of a watch and wait situation and a gradual return back to what you could do so long as you're in a safe position and most of the time you'll be fine. And that's not to discourage you from ever seeing a trained professional for this. But I think it's just trying to kind of like de like dramatize it a little bit. Sure. You know, I always I always say my favorite part is when I hear a, a patient or a parent exhale. And I'm always yeah. like, we got this. We, she's going to be fine. You're going to be fine. Mm-hmm. Right. And then again, I completely agree with you, Jeremy. It's in no way minimizing the injury. A concussion is a brain injury. We take them all really seriously. And we're very concerned about making sure people do not go back to activities, risk contact to the head again. Um, so, so much of what I do is really, again, neuroeducation. So if that's what you want to come in for, that's, that in and of itself is great, right? Um, and it's interesting because there's been several studies that have shown the earlier you get in to see a concussion specialist, the sooner you get better. And what I always joke is it's not that I have some sort of fairy dust. I <laughs> drink a lot of people. It's really just about education. It's about helping people understand the natural recovery um, you know, path and what to look out for and when to know what, what to intervene, right? And like when is... When are you having symptoms too long that they're suggesting we should be, you know, referring you for some sort of treatment? And I always want to stress to people that concussions are treatable and there are really good evidence-based effective methods to do that. And I want people to feel a sense of control because, you know, yes, you go to Google and you go down this really dark, scary rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's difficult because, and you know, the Dr. Google, there's... There's a lot of information that's mixed up between like acute injuries and prolonged recovery, right? And it's hard for people to, to distinguish between those things. And it doesn't, it's not insulting anybody. It's just, it's hard. It's a lot of information. And there's information out there that's old and you know, hasn't been updated or just truthfully factually wrong. Um, and there's a lot of people who are trying to sell things, uh, products and treatments and things that are not based on science. So people do feel overwhelmed. So I'm, I'm always happy if someone just wants to come in and ask whatever questions they want about this injury. So they walk out feeling like, okay, I got this. You know, my, my kid will be okay. I'll be okay. Who do you think is equipped to diagnose and give the information? I mean, certainly, I mean, you're at the pinnacle of the peak. This is why, you know, our organization sought you out to bring you on because we, we needed someone like you to tell us how to do it right. Um, But not everybody has access to that. So what do you think is a reasonable person to seek out, reasonable provider? Like if you, you know, if I had a kid and I was worried that my kid had a concussion, like how do we, how do I even look to see who's a good person to give me some good information? So I think there's two categories there. So Mm -hmm. when it's the acute injury, um, and I'm not just saying this because I'm talking to two sports medicine docs, but <laughs> I do love sports medicine docs. Um, you see it, right? You you see it, but you also understand athletes and you also understand that it's not just your head, right? That there's other injuries that come along with any kind of fall or contact. So you you guys see this. Mm-hmm. Um, I love pediatricians too, um, mm-hmm. because pediatricians, you know, obviously see a lot of kids, they understand children. And so those are great resources. Um, you know, the ER, I, you know, there's, this is not a criticism of ER physicians at all, but, you know, an e, I always joke that ERs 
physician's job is to make sure you're not going to die. And then mm-hmm. once they're sure of that, they're like, you know, you, you, you go on. And so it's not always the best place to, to get a lot of education. Again, that's not a criticism. Good. God knows they deal with so many things that I can't even wrap my head around. So I, I really like, um, I typically send people to sports medicine docs or, phys- or, um, or pediatrician, but any physician with you know, any sort of training um, in concussions, particularly younger physicians, because it was interesting. There was a study a number of years ago and it looked at how much training physicians have in med school. And it was like 15 minutes. And but we're now up to an hour. So woo, we're making big progress. Um, so it, so then it, it's really not, uh, you know, in the med school that you're getting experience. It's really about your training. There are certain situations that seeing a specialist is probably, you know, advantageous. And that is, you know, when, first off, when someone's not getting better, right? When somebody's not recovering within that normal recovery time. If somebody is having a multiple concussions, that may be a situation where you should be seeking out a specialist. If somebody has pre-existing conditions that may be contributing to those, those um, symptoms, if it's just a, a question about sports, like, you know, I, because of the world I live in, I, you know, know things about football helmets and hockey helmets and soccer, you know, gear and mouth guards, all these things. So sometimes people have very specific questions about sports or on occasion, the, in a case like this, this, this week already, um, you know, should I be retiring from sports, right? I've had too mm-hmm. many concussions or uh, I'm an adult. I had a bunch of, you know, I played, you know, X sport as a kid. I've had a bunch of concussion, you know, what should I be looking for? So all of those really complex situations, people do well to look for a specialist, uh, somebody who has that experience. And there's a lot of sports neuropsychologists and there's sports neurologists um, and a very experienced sports medicine physician who um, are great resources for that type of evaluation. And I I would argue that a team-based approach is probably the most um, effective way to do this. Um, Just uh, a couple points there would be like the pediatrician obviously generally knows the kid the best. So a lot of times when you're saying like, is this normal for the child or that kind of thing, like having pediatrician input, even if they are seeing a specialist can be super, super helpful. In addition, though, you know, the research that's going on in concussion is, is, is rapid and ever changing and is difficult to keep up with even when you're in the field, let alone when you're a general practitioner who's trying to keep up with every other thing going on. And I think if you're not keeping up with it, you, you know, some of the recent paradigm shifts, and we're not going to talk a lot about treatment in this episode. This is wetting the whistle for future episodes, but <laughs> you know, the, the concept, and you mentioned this earlier, Beth, is that a lot of the paradigm has shifted to being actually more active right. after getting the concussion. And I think if you're seeing somebody who's not keeping up with that data, the tendency would still be to be like, okay, rest for two weeks and then come back. And again, like you're probably not causing irreparable harm to that person, but you are keeping them out of things. You are slowing their progression to getting back. You're doing a lot of things that if somebody was keeping up more with this information does make them quote heal faster. Oh, for sure. I I will often joke that um, I concuss myself by knocking my head on my desk from some of the things that I'm hearing that people are being told. Um, So yes, um, you really want to make sure that you're doing, you know, you're meeting with somebody who is, you know, experienced up on the research, you know, in, in the throes of it. Right. But I also want to comment on something you said. This concussion is absolutely a team injury, mm-hmm. meaning there is not one single profession that or uh, one discipline that has that you know can handle all these these the needs of these patients. 
Um, I spend most of my day referring people to other treatment. I, mm-hmm. I always joke that I really just listen to people and then I just send them off to people who actually help. Um, you know, physical therapists and and sports medicine docs and neurologists and um, you know ophthalmology and optometry. There's just there's so many psychiatry and psychology. There's just so many additional treatment avenues for people. Um, and so it's not, you should, it's not just one provider, right? Like it's absolutely a team approach when it comes for caring for uh, people with concussions, particularly people who have persistent symptoms. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great point. I wanted to bring back to, and I know Beth, you talked about this a little while ago and, and there's parallels to like the pediatrician or the family medicine physician, whoever's like the primary care for the, let's say it's a kid, you know, like a, a school aged kid. Um, knows that kid the most. I want to hearken back to what Beth said before about let's not make huge mention of athletic trainers. I think that they are so extremely invaluable for the diagnosis, but they tend to know these athletes, these patients extremely well. And that's the, the, especially with the teams that I work with that have athletic trainers and the, and the organizations I work with, that is the, First, I talk to the to the patient, then I immediately talk to the athletic trainer because I'm like, is this kid acting normal? You know them, you see them all the time. And they are also very well trained in their training to pick up on the signs and symptoms of concussion. And they're usually the first line of defense of saying like, you're out, buddy. You're, you're sidelined until we get you to see X, Y, and Z person to really solidify that diagnosis. So God bless them. I Listen, I couldn't agree more. I always say loudly, I'm a huge supporter of athletic trainers. These are great clinicians who do incredible work, work crazy hours for the love mm-hmm. of sport and for the love of kids. Um, and, uh, you know, and they are, they, they have honestly way more experience with concussions than a lot of physicians. Oh and, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And they really do know the kids. I mean, I a shout out to Joe Conane, who's at Lockport 30 years, just a real, just an, a pioneer when it comes to concussions. And, you know, and, Joe always says, the kid who's running away from you, you know, who's like, you know, keeps going down the sidelines. It's like, oh, that kid, I, I got to find him because he's, he's running away from you, right? And so it's, it's just, these are really important clinicians. And they're also a great separator between the coach and the, and the kid, mm-hmm. right? Because the coach wants to, oftentimes, why gets his kid back in. And they communicate to the parents and the kids. You know, and they oftentimes they have this fantastic trusting relationship with kids mm-hmm. that has been created, you know, over months or and or years of high school. So, yeah, I, you know, can't say enough about the, the value of athletic trainers when it comes to concussions and other injuries, of course, too. Yeah. It's an awesome segue to where I was going to teleport you next, which was to the side to the sideline, because I think many people think, you know, like we, we've talked about people in different places. So now the person's on the sideline and they maybe took a hit or maybe they're acting weird. Like how, how are we deciding whether these people go back into play versus we're pulling them out or, you know, having them evaluated later on? I think many times we try to communicate this to, to families, but I think a lot of times there's still a lot of like, I just don't understand how you guys are making your decisions. Absolutely. And so first off, if there's this athletic trainer, of course, have them be evaluated. And, you know, there's a tool that is typically used. It's called the SCAT. Now it's the fifth edition. Sixth edition should be coming out any time now, this next couple of months. Um, and, but the idea is that the SCAT is looking at sideline concussion assessment test. It's looking at a couple things. One is symptoms. Two is balance. And three is cognition. And so, or thinking. So memory, attention. 
And so it's a great tool to document those, those components of an injury. However, on many sidelines and rinks and et cetera, there are not an athletic trainer. Hmm. So it becomes very challenging. And I can't stress this enough. We really don't want parents or coaches making that decision. Um, unless you're properly trained, I, you know, I, I, I can't tell you how many times over the years I've had people who go, yeah, my coach did this and, you know, put their finger in front of my face. And I was like, does your coach know what they're looking for? What are they doing? Right. I don't know. Um, so we don't want them making that decision. So, you know, many people have heard the phrase when in doubt, sit them out. And that really is the case is if somebody takes any significant contact to the head and there's any of those signs or symptoms, they just have to be removed. And it's not that every time that happens, it's a concussion. There are plenty of times, I know Julie and, and, and Jeremy, you see this, isn't, we see people, we're like, nope, not a concussion, you're good, right? But you can't not risk sending them back to play if they have a concussion. So it's just removal from play, they don't go back that day. Um, and you know, at, at the pro level, even when we have seemingly 400 doctors on the sidelines, even then, it can be difficult to make that determination. Um, so we certainly don't want coaches or parents to be making that decision. So maybe talk a little bit about like why we don't want people going back in. There is second impact syndrome, right? Yeah. So we have to be careful when we use the term second impact syndrome. It's pretty controversial and yeah. not, it's not well defined. It's sure. certainly, it's certainly a, um, a condition. It's really diffuse cerebral edema, meaning the brain swells rapidly. Um, there's a lot of uh, controversy, meaning there's disagreement about what actually is that mechanism. So is it, it does it happen? Absolutely. There are, unfortunately, um, you know, people who suffer traumatic brain injuries and do have these catastrophic injuries and or fatal injuries. But we're mostly worried about is, because uh, again, that's exceptionally rare. Let's emphasize that. Thank, thank goodness it's exceptionally rare. But what we do know is that when somebody has a concussion, their brain is more vulnerable to contact. So we absolutely don't want them doing is taking contact to the head again. Because what we see is that those symptoms get worse and it takes longer to recover. And there's data that shows this, that you know, mm -hmm. it, when people are not removed from play and they continue to take, you know, play in a contact sport, that they are, take longer to recover. So I always say that you know, when I do training with athletes, like, listen, just tell us about your symptoms. Your headache may be that you're dehydrated or that your helmet's on too tight or you have a science mm -hmm. infection or whatever, right? Let us make the distinction for you because when you go back, when you continue or you minimize your symptoms and go back too soon, there are certainly serious consequences of that. Um, and it's interesting too, because we also know that uh, there's a decline in performance. So when you ask, you know, kids, who had concussion, why they didn't report it, and re non-reporting is a huge problem, um, they'll say, I didn't want to let my teammates down. And we yeah. say, you know, if you don't perform well, you're letting your teammates down. So, you know, we it's really, really on us to make sure that we're getting that message across to kids about the dangers of, of returning and the reasonableness of the adults about wanting to get them back, right? Um, so many times they think, if they report it, they're going to be out for a week. So they're going to be removed from play permanently or, you know, um, and, you know, their mom's going to freak out and never let them go back, you know, playing. So we want to tell them that, you know, we will work with them back. My goal is always to get a kid back to play unless 
it's not appropriate. There's certainly those times. Um, but, you know, we want to work with kids to get to play. I think that's a great question and a great distinction that you just made there, Dr. Piroth, that, you know, the concept of second impact syndrome is fine and we could debate that forever. But really what you're saying is this is a safety issue and and also we want to protect their brain while it's healing the same way you would protect someone's broken bone while it's healing. You know, you don't want them to go run another 800 meters when they've got a stress fracture in their foot. So the same rules apply here. And I think, you know, to sort of pivot a little bit, Beth, I think you talked about some of the barriers to concussion diagnosis. I think we've gone through quite a few of them organically through our discussion. Are there any other barriers that you can think of that we should address before we kind of move on? So one of it is really lack of understanding about what a concussion is. So if you again, if you look at the data and why people don't report, some kids, particularly their first concussion, honestly don't know those symptoms are concussion. So I don't believe that. Not- Did you see the CDC guidelines or the CDC definition? <laughs> Shut up about that, Jeremy. <laughs> yes. You know, uh, they should all know that because the kids are really, the CDC is very hip. So the kids always, <laughs> the kids always read the, the CDC. just twisting too much, guys. Oh, yeah, I we have two teenagers and we talk yet. about the CDC all the time. <laughs> uh, like, what are you talking about? Um, so, you know, and, and, and so sometimes... You know, kids will just say, I honestly, I, I didn't, yeah, I know I felt weird or I felt this. And, and they'll just say, I honestly didn't know it was a concussion. And so that really can happen. And so, again, it's on us to get that information to kids in a way that's digestible. Because, um, you know, you said my, my abbreviations after my name. And one of them is MPH because I have a master's in public health because I literally was so frustrated with how we educate the public, right? It's experts do a PowerPoint and they talk in front of other, you know, clinicians and we pat ourselves on the back like, oh, good study. Um, but how are we getting that information out to the public? So this is why things like podcasts make me happy because people who are not sitting in our conferences are listening to this to this podcast. Right. Um, and they're not reading journals and they're not, you know, uh, digesting all the, all the stats and things that we, you know, mm-hmm. talk about. And so we have to find ways to get this information out to the public, to parents, to athletes, to coaches, to, to officials. Officials can be a great way of picking up those mm-hmm. signs that we talked about. Um, they should be, they need to be trained. You know, any stakeholder in new sports needs to have information on concussions in ways that are digestible, understandable, and they can retain and actually apply in um, the setting. And I'm not sure the CDC description meets that criteria for, yeah, right? And so we need to do better. So thank yeah. you for having this podcast. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> thank you, Beth. Um, I think we debunked quite a few of the common myths and misinformation about concussions already. Again, organically, you guys, it's like you've seen my outline. Um, you know, the first was all people who have a concussion need to lay in a room in a dark room for days. No, <laughs> false. Um, false. A CT scan is needed to rule in or out a concussion. False. Um, we kind of touched on those. Uh, the other one I wanted to bring up, what about helmets and mouth guards? Do they prevent concussions, Beth? So yes and no. Um, let's mm-hmm. do mouth guards quickly. That one's easy. The answer is no. Um, <laughs> the research at these looks, you know, quite closely at this. Um, mouth guards are important for those of us who have paid for orthodontia for our children. We, 
uh, like the mothguards. Um, so they have value. They just don't dissipate the energy enough to make a difference when it comes to concussion. So again, not minimizing uh, uh, mothguards, just not helpful in concussion prevention. Yeah. Now, when it comes to helmets, you know, the analogy always is that, you know, the brain is moving inside the skull. So until you can figure out a way to stop that, you're not going to create a helmet that's concussion proof. However, there, you know, helmets are better than others to dissipate, again, the, to, to lessen the energy that's applied to the head. And the NFL, to their credit, has spent a lot of money looking at uh, um, a myriad of factors and really working closely with manufacturers to improve the quality of helmets. And what's interesting, I tell people all the time, Virginia Tech has a, um, a rating system, a helmet rating system. And I tell people all the time, before you go out and buy a hockey helmet, a lacrosse helmet, a bike helmet, a football helmet, go to the Virginia Tech website and look at the helmet. You really don't want to put your kid in a helmet that's less than four or five stars. The difference between four and five stars is really minimal. Um, it's really about fit. If your kid fits better in a four-star helmet than a five-star helmet, then that's better, right? Mm. But I wouldn't put my dog in a two-star helmet because <laughs> my dog's really cute. Uh, and, uh, you know, so, uh, and years ago, there was no studies of, of hockey helmets. Virginia Tech started looking at hockey helmet, and every helmet was either zero, one, or two stars. Oh, no. So it was very distressing. And, um, and if then if you looked at the sort of the quality of the padding and the things, and it was quite clear as to why. And to the credit of the manufacturers, um, CCM and Bauer, and they have really stepped up. There, the, there's a dramatic improvement over the last, I would say, four or five years in the quality of hockey helmets based on the Virginia Tech rating system. Um, you know, I my youngest son, you know, played hockey, and uh, we went out and bought him a new helmet. It was a five star helmet. Um, I went with, you know, two helmets in mind. Well, those two were the one ones he was going to get. Um, and there's, you know, bicycle helmets, lacrosse helmets, and other, and other things. So you're, again, not going to get a perfect helmet, but you want to get one that fits properly. You want to get one that's a better rating. And you want to check it regularly. Um, helmets can degrade. They can crack. I had a patient recently who really whacked his head hard in a, in a hockey game. And I said I wanted them to look at the um, shell of the helmet mm -hmm. to make sure that what it didn't, it, you know, there wasn't any damage to it because then it needs to be replaced. Um, there's also a Noxy rating uh, and the, a Noxy sticker on the back. It will give an expiration date. Um, you literally, it's no good after that date. Uh, there was a Pinterest tape of hockey moms who were taking old hockey helmets and making them into planters. Oh, <laughs> it's like excellent. Just as long as your kid doesn't take the plant out and put it back on their head. Um, so, you know, helmets are important, but, um, and I also will add to that list, um, soccer headgear. Mm -hmm. No, again, no. Um, the research has been very consistent that that does not, um, make enough of a difference to warrant putting these, you know, these bands around kids head. So, um, I'm much more interested in focusing on prevention in the sense of teaching proper, um, uh, you know, technique. Mm -hmm. uh, to making sure that kids are following rules. Um, there was a study in hockey that looked at and said that the vast majority of concussions in hockey were done by illegal plays. Mm -hmm. So we need enforcement of, right? Mm -hmm. um, so style of play. There's a lot of things that you can do to try to reduce uh, uh, concussions in these sports, although you, you'll never prevent them. 
And these are, yeah. there's inherent risk in these sports for sure. What about the guardian caps? You know, the, the new things that the NFL players are all wearing in practice. I just feel like since we're on this topic, people may yeah. be asking that question. Cause I think the NFL just this year, like put it on everybody or something like no, so, the usage of it. <laughs> you didn't put it on everybody. So I do actually sit on the NFL head, neck and spine committee. Which you missed, Julie, in, in my list. Ah, uh, there were so many words. So many never words. heard of them. Never yeah. heard of them. So um, we do obviously look at this data really clearly. And so we just put it on a certain position. Mm. And um, we did see a reduction. And it was only in preseason, I should say. We did see a reduction in concussions in those that wore the, um, the guardian cap. Okay. Mm. That might make this really clear. That is not a wild, you know, wide endorsement of the guardian cap. It's sure. one year, one set of data. Okay, if anyone knows who does who does any research, that's just one data set, right? Yeah. We have to continue to look at these, look, refine that data. I will tell you that um, they made based on the NFL findings, they made some adjustments in the like the guardian cap, how, where it came down, how it fits to the to the cap. So they also look to see. Um, was there an increase in neck injuries with mm. the guardian cap? Because it's adding some weight to the helmet um, and always worried about viscosity. So one of the things that we look at is how does, you know, if you look at a, a football helmet or hockey helmet, it's made to slide. So people slide off each other so that mm. there's not, you know, if it sticks, you're having more pressure to the head and neck. And so we, they looked to see, was there any increase in neck injuries? There was not. They also looked to see, was there any increase in heat-related illness? Because obviously it's adding, you know, some, it, um, adding some weight as well as, you know, you, uh, heat can't dissipate away off the head. That was not the case. But again, that doesn't mean it's a wet endorsement. I wouldn't be recommending that, you know, teams rush out and buy the mm -hmm. Guardian cap until we have more data. Um, also keep in mind, once you alter your helmet in any way, you have voided the warranty of that helmet. Mm -hmm. So you have to be careful with making those adjustments to these helmets, adding, you know, any add-ons or any taking anything out because you have, you know, um, again, more, voided the warranty on that helmet. So when it comes to kids, I no, I'm not telling people to go out and get the guardian cap yet. That was really engaging, all that helmet talk. That was really good. Oh, thanks. We, I want to briefly... You brought this up already, but the whole waking up every two hour crap too. Just like that's another myth that like people like wake up their kids like every two hours at night and then make them more concussed in the morning. Yeah. So, you know, first off, if you've taken them to the hospital and they had a CT scan or an examination, you don't need to wake them. We're eliminated any concern. And I will want to add to just to clarify a CT scan, like Julie said, doesn't rule out a concussion. It's just done to rule out the scary stuff, right? The cerebral bleed, the hemorrhage. So that's great. Uh, it doesn't mean someone didn't have a concussion. But if somebody's had an examination, you don't have to wake them up all the time. Um, and you're just going to make them crabby and you crabby, right? So you yeah. get two, a crabby parent and a crabby kid. And I have a colleague who always said, if you're so worried that you're waking your kid up every two hours, just take him to the hospital, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, but generally, if you have watched them for at least four hours or so, and you haven't seen that decline, um, you know, uh, worst thing of symptoms, like we mentioned before, it's okay. And you also have to look at the mechanism of injury. So we very much worry about people who, you know, fall and hit their head on concrete. Unfortunately, in Chicago this time of year, we get a lot of that. But 
somebody just taking an elbow to, you know, the back of their head is not likely going to have a cerebral bleed unless they have some sort of bleeding disorder. Okay. Mm. So, you, you know, you have to look at all of those things to say, you know, is it something that is possibly life-threatening? Uh, so, yes, that we don't want people being woken up every couple hours. Beth, you went through a ton of resources when you talked about the helmet stuff. I'm not sure how much we talked about resources. If somebody was to like just want to look up on the internet concussion stuff, do you send people somewhere that's not the CDC? Since we've banged on them a bunch, I do. I mean, I'm joking with the CDC. I actually know people at CDC who yeah. do wonderful work. I actually do often send people to CDC. Actually, it's their been, concussion website is really good. It's, we it is. Really, it's actually it is. very good. Yeah. We've, we've, we've we've shit on it a lot. I know. It's, I it's know. just because that definition isn't the best yeah. when you read it on a podcast. Yeah, the definition uh, out loud doesn't sound great, but the CDC actually does have really good in, in, information. Um, and it's a good starting point. You know, I always joke with people, they should be looking to you know, the CDC or Midwest Orthopedics at Rush or, you know, Mayo Clinic, Cleveland Clinic, John Hopkins, not, you know, Joe's house of concussion, right? Like, yeah. you have to be looking at reputable sites. But I will tell you, um, you know, when I came to MOR a few years ago and we were redesigning our website, I sat down, I looked at a lot of websites, right? Like, to see, you know, uh, what was good and... Um, I saw a lot of really good, you know, places, reputable places who had old information. So, you know, it has to be updated regularly because it's actually as exactly as Jeremy said, that our knowledge changes constantly. And, you know, and again, this is what I do for a living. And it can even for me be hard to keep up on the research. Try really hard, um, but constantly evolving. And so you want to make sure that your uh, sites are, you know, site sites are citing research that's up to date not you know 2003 um yeah because we've changed a lot since 2003 yeah if people want to learn more about you if they want to see the stuff that you're doing um point people to find you how do they find you so i would go to the rushortho.com website at midwest orthopedics at rush there's information there about my practice and my um contact information i also did a tedx chicago talk uh year, you know, a year ago um, that was a great experience. Loved it. Uh, and that's talking about this issue of rest. So if you have, you know, 10 minutes and you're really bored, go ahead and watch my TEDx talk. And so um, there's other, uh, you know, there's other, um, I've done a number of Facebook lives and mm -hmm. the things talking about these, these issues. It's not as fun as talking to you two. Oh, I will tell you. Bad. You're invited back anytime. And by invited <laughs> back, you're going to have to come back because we only did part of concussion. So yeah, great. you're not, you're well, not off the hook. <laughs> I'll put all this stuff in the show notes too. I'll find your TEDx talk link and then your I'll link to your MOR bio as well so people can can find that uh, very easily. Thank Wrap you. us up, Julie. Well, the first one I thought was great was when in doubt, sit them out. And maybe this time it is all in your head. Listen to your doctor friends. <laughs> the amazing music is credited to Skillcell with Pixabay licensure. The podcast is meant for educational and entertainment purposes only. The contents of this podcast should not be taken as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. Please consult a medical professional for any medical issues that you may be having. The contents of this podcast are the opinions of the hosts only and do not reflect the opinions of their employers or affiliations. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast. Under no circumstances shall Dr. Julie Bruni or Dr. Jeremy Allen or any guest to the podcast be responsible for damages arising from use of the podcast.